All right, and welcome to another episode of Burritos, Breaks, and Flies. This is the start of Season 3. It's crazy we've gotten this far. So, we're super stoked to start it off. Thank you for your listenership, and this is going to be a good one. We have, once again, Phil Rowley, Stillwater Master, uh, to open up the season for us. And we are going to talk about scud fishing. You might be familiar with that. You might not. If not, you're going to learn something. If you are, you're going to learn something. So we're going to talk about scud applications locally in Pyramid Lake uh, and abroad. Uh, Scuds are quite common in still waters and tail waters alike. So we're going to talk about what they are, how to use them, different patterns, and all that good stuff. So sit back, and I think you'll enjoy this one. And again, thank you to all of our sponsors, Loop Tackle, Monic Fly Lines, Adams Built Fishing, Battleborn Beer. Uh, without your support, hey, this wouldn't be possible. So sit back and enjoy this great podcast on Scuds. and welcome to another episode of burritos breaks and flies this is our first podcast season three and we are kicking it off with now our three-time repeat guest so appropriate third time back start of the third season mr phil roley thank you sir for joining us thanks for it's great to be back nico it's great to be back yeah Awesome. And we have our fabulous co-host, Taylor, a.k.a. The Prodigy, Brune. Not so much, especially around Phil, but nice seeing you again, Phil. Good to Likewise, get, good to, to, get to talk to you. Congratulations <laughs> on your third season. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's kind of weird going into it. It was looking at all of our recordings, and it's like January, and I start the podcast season off every January. I'm like, it's number three. And I think we're like like episode 40 or something 39 40 so yeah. pretty pretty fun pretty great and um we're lucky to have guests like you phil so thank you, thank you. so we asked phil to come back because we we started kind of really digging into uh still water more and more especially on our end with with the pyramid season um you know trying to look for new and better ways to target trophy fish and, and not only at pyramid you know what happens at pyramid translates to other local still waters we're fishing for trout and they all have common diets, right? Regardless of the species, when they're landlocked, when they're still water fish, uh, they're looking for certain things. And we found in our area, majority of the stuff, they're looking for bait fish. They're looking for coronamids. But as we found out recently, through experimentation with fly tying, uh, some local knowledge and some research papers, we've, we discovered scuds. And scuds has always been in uh, the vocabulary of fly fishing out here, you know, but... I found it more in the vocabulary of the very, the, the veteran and seasoned stillwater and uh, and and tailwater angler, and they'll mention it, and that's about it. You know, try a scud, and that leaves you wandering, pondering. You know, scraping for scud patterns. What does that mean? What are they? What what's what's happening here? 
So we divulge a little bit and and personally I've had some recent success tied a, a funky scud pattern and took it out to pyramid and I've had in two trips out a hundred percent success rate with dunks on nothing else. I tie everything else on and nothing's beating the scud, at least right now. I'm sure that'll change at some point. But so what we're getting to is we figured we'd come to the uh, the master himself, the man who probably has more scud experience than anyone that we know in this current and relevant universe, Phil. So <laughs> we thought we might roll out the red carpet to you, sir, and, and maybe just give us a give us a a, a rudimentary, you know, uh, education on the scud. You know, maybe a somewhere between the thirty thousand and ten thousand foot view, depending on how far you want to get into oh, it. But just let let us know. Let, let's talk about your scud experience and start off. What's a scud and why? Well, scud is um, they belong to the you know they're a crustacean. Um, same, you know, same um, order as order, no, order Amphipoda, and I think they're in uh, phylum, I can't remember my science, but anyway, same stuff as crayfish, um, you know, your regular jumbo shrimp you get at Costco and put on the barbecue mm. or, or uh, put in a salad, um, but they're they're smaller, they're relatives of the sow bug as well, um, and they are rich in calories, they're like the carbohydrate of the underwater world, they help Mm. Trout pack on pounds in, you know, growth rates of two pounds per season are not unheard of. Um, you know, you guys know I've been down to Argentina uh, three times now. I'm going down a fourth time in October. Amazing. And that is the primary food source of those big fish in Lago Strobel, or most people know it as Jurassic Lake, um, are scuds. Um, that is what, that's the fuel um, that drives that fishery. Um, so there, um, th there's two main families, um, Gamorous and Hyalella. I'm trying to keep this around 20,000 feet. Um, okay. The only real difference between the two is Hyalella are smaller and tend to be more widespread. The Gamorous need um, um, high amounts of calcium in their water, uh, calcium carbonate, for the development of their exoskeletons. Um, that's that chitinous exoskeleton it's called. Um, so they're they're mm. uh, and they're they're prolific. Um, you know, they're not breeding every five seconds, but, uh, you know, they do breed a number of times a year. Um, and the they're, they have a unique little life because they, um, when they, when they mate, the, the female keeps the eggs in an, kind of an external pouch um, called the marsupium, which if you kangaroos are on marsupials, you can see where that comes from. Um, and she keeps them in there. They hatch in there. And then when she sheds her skin, she releases them and off they go to hopefully survive and, you know, <laughs> have careers and jobs and don't end up as lunch somewhere. Um, and when she sheds, um, a, a freshly molted scud is often a blue coloration because they have a copper based um, blood system. So until those um, their their exoskeleton hardens again and, and sort of takes on the, the, the surroundings that they uh, live in, um, they'll often have that bluish look to them. Um, as well, but they they are masters of mm -hmm. camouflage. Um, I have you know I've kept them in aquariums and studied them, and um, they can adjust their coloration to match their surrounding. It's not like a chameleon; you just throw them on something and they instantly turn that way. But over time, they'll transition to that color. So uh, because um, they are omnivorous, and I used to put the set the aquarium up with lots of weeds in it, and those little buggers would eat all the weeds, and then it would become kind of more lighter colored bottom and they would start to match that coloration and become paler and paler so um mm. you know with any food source it always pays it pay it makes it pays attention um or you should pay attention get that right um to match the coloration of the environment they live in so if they're in a dark 
olive environment, the scuds are going to be around that coloration. Um, you know, if it's lighter water, they're, lighter water, they're going to be paler. Um, those ones in Argentina are more of a um, olivey, kind of a reddish brown mix, mm. right? So, so your gamers again, they get, you know, I've seen them five eighths of an inch long, like they're big. Um, they do occur in salt waters too. I know a lot of anglers over in Scandinavia tie gamorous patterns uh, when they're fishing for sea trout off their uh, beaches. I follow some of those guys on YouTube, so I get some inspiration for some cool looking gamorous patterns. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, you know, they're, they're also prevalent, as you mentioned, in tailwaters. Uh, it's all about the water quality. You know, tailwaters are usually, um, you know, can be quite fertile environments and, and the right kind of water chemistry. Um, for scud populations to take hold, and usually when they take hold, they're they're pretty prolific. Um, your gamorous, uh, sorry, your hyalella, the smaller ones, maybe an eighth of an inch long at maturity. Yeah. Really, they look to the to you and I, they look identical. They're you know they're either eating scuds that are a size twelve or they're eating scuds that are a size sixteen or eighteen, right? And that's generally try to t- try to match that. They um, from a habits, they they're not a big fan of bright conditions, so oftentimes. Um, like to fish scuds, overcast days, or you know, morning before direct light gets on the water, into the evening because they'll come out of their, um, you know, their hiding places to forage around. Um, but when they're out, you know, when it's bright light, you know, it doesn't say it doesn't happen all the time, but it's generally a lower percentage time that scuds would be more visible. They're certainly going to be active, but they're going to be in and amongst the weeds and under rocks and generally staying uh, um, out of cover. When I did the research for my first book um five patterns for still waters which is i believe sadly out of print now um when i was doing my throat and diet analysis charts in that book scuds were about 40 percent of all the trout i'd ever um um you know sampled uh chronomids were more were more widespread but both of those bugs um simply they they expose themselves they get out from undercover they you know their their activities whether it's scuds just foraging around you know, or in the case of coronavirus, just hatching in such huge numbers that, you know, you just targets of opportunity. Um, you know, those scuds are, ironically, they, next to dragonfly nymphs, they were the nastiest critter in the tank. Um, they would hunt like a gang. Um, sometimes they just eat all the plant life, uh, and other times they jump on a damselfly nymph and shred them, six or eight of them in seconds, right? It was just like, holy smokes. So they are... Oh. Uh, and there's even a scud huh. that has got into the lakes of England. It came over from Germany, and they've nicknamed it the killer shrimp because that one is purely carnivorous. So huh. it is, uh, it's having an impact, I think, on the invertebrate populations in their lakes. Um, I haven't had the good fortune to go over there and experience it for myself, but it's certainly made, in, in some of their waters, uh, made an incredible scud fishery because they're big, right? So these trout, like, you know, that's good, good, good stuff. Um, to fill up on so they're you know from a fly fishing perspective they're just a great food source to imitate for us because they're what i call a staple or a bread and butter food item in that they're around all the time the scuds don't hatch into anything else you'll never see i often thought on april fools once to invent a scud emerger or something because they're crawling out of the water to emerge but they don't um so they just start life as a scud and finish life as a scud right so they're just around all the time and trout really, you know, my local waters or the waters I fish, early spring is really good times to fish to fish them right after the ice comes off because they're one of the few food sources that are around and available. Uh, and in the fall months as well, because the majority, 
all of your hatches are done by that time. So the trout are, you know, turning their diet back to scuds and and coming into the shallows to feed on them because that's where scuds like to live. You're probably targeting water on average 10 feet deep or less, maybe 15. Um, it all depends on light penetration and weed growth and habitat for them to survive in. But, uh, you know, yeah. the, that doesn't mean you couldn't catch a fish on a scud in 25 feet of water because thankfully fish aren't swimming around there with entomology charts and <laughs> hatch charts. <and> like <laughs> we'd be this, this sport would be screwed if that was happening. Um, so they'll certainly respond to one. But, you know, by far, the, the, that's where you're going to most often find trout feeding on them. Right. And you're just trying to put yourself in the right spot using the right fly and the right techniques. So. Yeah. fascinating you know fascinating and, and i i like what you said about you know that that depth range so yeah. one of the one of the local studies i was looking at for for like pyramid lake for specifically is that they're they were setting gill nets <clears throat> but the depths that they were setting the gill nets were, were they're considerably deep i mean they were mm-hmm. below uh they weren't fishing above they, they weren't fishing that zero to 15 foot range mm-hmm. as far as i saw majority of their catches were coming much deeper you know 20 yeah. 30 40 50 60 feet and you know and based off of where they were laying in that net you know they 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 take them out and and uh and inspect their stomachs and whatnot and that's where they got you know these percentages of scuds because i thought the scuds should be higher because it was calling for the smaller fish were at 20 percent, the bigger fish were at five percent and i'm like well that, that could be true and you know and like oh they have a high bait fish um uh, percentage in their tummies and i'm like well at those depths of course they do yeah of course they do you know and that range i i feel like if those nets were set higher and in shallower waters they would have seen a higher percentage you know at that time but what i'm getting at too is you did say something very interesting phil mm-hmm. about the overcast days um you know so low light conditions basically mm-hmm. is when they're yeah. prolific so i tried something a little different i had that in mind mm-hmm. um and literally let's see three four five of these catches i had on scuds were literally midday like 12 30 to 1 30. yeah and i and i but i think they and, and not too much overcast you know a little bit a little bit of color loss in the sky or light loss in the sky but what i did notice and why i went to a scud is because i was on a long sloping shallow bank um and i looked down in the water and i noticed there's a bit a little bit of turnover a lot of aquatic plants getting churned up Yep. And, you got and the wave kick, action there on pyramid too, right? Yes, sir. And, 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 and even like when the wave action would stop, you'd still get this floating in. And I'm like, well, that has to be, that has to be dislodging scuds, yep. you know, against their will, even in the bright sunshine. So yep. I was fishing these guys, I was fishing these guys at six feet in broad daylight and, yep. and dunking the bobber. And I saw it, I'm like, these are targets of opportunity. Nothing easier for these fish to pick up. There's bushes floating around yep. and scud, bam, 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 bam. You know, but I'm eager to see, you know, the, the, the change in those depths to see what, you know, what the results will be. Because I've, I've been sticking, I've been in that happy six foot range, which is uniquely shallow <laughs> for such big trout. But that shows you what they're doing. They're going up and they're, and they're coming yeah. up. And Yeah, exactly. Those fish in deep water, it doesn't mean they're feeding, not feeding on down there because, you know, probably there isn't scuds at that depth. But those fish are going to come into the shallows, do a little grazing, and then slide out into that deep water where they feel safe and secure they can digest, they can just stay deep and, and do whatever it is they do out there, and then they'll come in. So, And then smaller fish probably feed on them uh, more so than the larger fish, because the larger fish, you know, being a bigger animal now, needs more protein, more calories, you know, to each other, yeah. and 
you know, juvenile uh, cutthroat, whatever they can charge down, that's what they're going to do. Because yeah. even in some of the shield lakes I fish that have scuds, you'll see lake trout, the juveniles will be feeding on chironomids and 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 scuds and damsels and, and regular sort of invertebrates you'd associate with rainbows, browns, cutthroats and lakes. And then, of course, as they get bigger, then they start turning their focus to cisco and smelt and each other and whitefish, um, you know, just because they get be bigger, bigger kids in the playground, they need you know, bigger lunches to, to get themselves through the day, right? You know, right. you mentioned about the, the wave action. That's one of the reasons, you know, to back down to Argentina and, and Jurassic Lake is, you know, it's Patagonia is a windy place. And, um, you know, the, you know, a lot of people are, you know, become concerned, you know, how windy can it get? And I can recall fishing in close to 70 mile an hour winds and the trout loved it. You know, they, they have evolved to survive in that. Um, that makes them, you know, muscular and trim and fit because they're always having to fight that surf. Um, but they are in there. Um, they like that chop. You know, it masks their presence. It diffuses light. And, of course, as you noticed, it churns up food, right, and scours those scuds out of the crevices in the rocks. And then they're just, you know, sort of in the chum, in the mix, and they just swim along and, and graze on them. And I've had some really good scud fishing in the past where you, you know, most people when it's windy tend to, you know, worst case scenario, leave the lake and don't bother going out or will try to find areas that are not getting, um, you know, influenced by the wind, you know, get the wind out of their way. But if it's safe to do so, one of the best places to fish is that shoreline getting all that wind action, that downwind shore that's getting churned up. You know, the casting may be challenging because you're you're, you're facing a bit of a stiff wind, but you really don't want to cast into it anyway. You want to cast as parallel or as an acute angle as you can to bring your flies sort of parallel or close to that shoreline where those fish, you know, in that feeding lane that they're cruising through. Um, so short cast, you know, you're not really worried about, um, you know, delicate presentation because, you know, if you slap it hard down on the surface, that wave action is going to mask that, um, how that fly lands. And, and your their fish are often, you know, on Jurassic, you know, a rod length away. They're cruising. You can see them and they don't seem to mind you. And you put a scud out in front of them or a leech or anything, you know, they're in there just foraging. They're targets of opportunity. Um, they'll eat it. Right. So it's, it's, it's a great, it's a great food source if they're present, you know, and it's always, anytime you visit a lake, it's always a good idea to, you know, not get so excited that you just, you know, jump in your boat or your pontoon boat or wade out up to your waist or further and start flailing away. Like, you know, um, (laughs) (laughs) it is spooky. (laughs) Spooky music for Scott. Um, is to invest, you know, 10 or 15 minutes and, and you know, kneel down and have a look, you know, turn over some rocks, some logs, because that's a prime place to find hiding scuds and have a look and get a measure of their size, their coloration. You know, if you've never seen one before, you know, put it in your hand and see how they move around because they are um, unique little swimmers. They The important thing with lakes is we're often trying to fish uh, a swimming scud, Right. Uh-huh. And a lot of commercial patterns are this almost C-shaped um, scud, which is a scud that's resting, dead, or feeding, right? Or drifting um, sometimes. And so that's, you'll see more of those probably more prevalent mm-hmm. to use in a tailwater situation where the current moving them. But in lakes, we're imitating scuds that are moving from point A to point B. And, you know, they kind of swim erratically, almost like they're drunk all over the place. And they swim predominantly extended with the tip of their the tail or their telson it's called 
hanging down. So you want to tie scud patterns that are predominantly straight to imitate that um, uh, swimming scud. Now, if you're hanging them under an indicator, you could maybe more of a C-shaped, you know, a scud hook type of uh, presentation because that would imitate a scud that's just curled up. And, and you know, honestly, for the most part, if uh, our trout are swimming up to our fly and noticing that body profile, you're probably not catching that fish anyway because he's noticing a lot more other flaws in the fly for including that big hook point that seems to be hanging below that thankfully they consistently ignore all the time right uh, right <laughs> um but you know so that you you um you know somewhat influenced by the presentation but if so i typically are tying my scuds on hooks like uh daiichi 1760 a two extra long nymph hook with a slight curve or even just a standard shank uh heavy wire wet fly hook um and i'll go slightly down the bend mm. just to give a bit of a curve but over the years, I've sort of moved away from, and it doesn't say I don't, but moved away from a traditional scud hook. Um, just for that reason, and also what happens with those scuds is when you weight them, uh, put a bead on them or lead wire, that pronounced curved shank, now the, the peak of that shank is now the heaviest point on the hook and your fly rolls over upside down all the time. Um, which for some, you know, can be a, you know, flies not behaving in the way you tied it, right? It's, it's swimming upside down, you know, maybe it'll work in South America or the Southern Hemisphere because everything's on the opposite side there. It's upside down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's perfectly yeah. tuned. Yeah, upside down. Um, <laughs> yeah, so you've got to watch because, you know, I'm probably like many fly fishers, I'm attracted to curved hooks. They just, you know, a salmon, you know, a Bartlett salmon hook just looks like, wow, that's just a good looking hook, right? Yeah. And same with, we see those curved hooks. I think we we, we, we gravitate towards them um, because they look good and, and they make us feel good. And if a fly, if a fly makes you feel good, you're probably going to fish it with more confidence, be more, more likely to pull it out and, and take it for a swim and consequently do better with it. Um, but you do have to watch sometimes most of my scuds now, um, if I'm, um, you know, fishing them slowly, I, I don't wait them, you know, I'll, I'll make my fly line choice to get them down. That doesn't say I don't, you will find beadhead scuds in my, in my, uh, fly box, certainly, because there are times that you, you need to plop them down, maybe on a floating line and a bit of a longer leader in three or four feet of water. Um, you know, if trout are in there foraging like early spring, late fall, and then you use, the retrieve we mo I most often use when fishing scuds is a really fairly brisk, like one to two inch pull, right? Um, mm. Like quick, um, because a lot of times there you're trying to make your fly stand out in the crowd. So we're not, you know, I'm, I'm not a big believer of playing hide and seek with my flies, where I'm trying to, you know, match them as best I can anatomically with how they're tied and how I move them. I want them to be a little larger, a little more, you know, moving a little at a faster pace, or maybe that bead puts a little bit of flash in there too, that, you know, draws that fish over and sticks out in the crowd and gets the attention, right? So it's, you know, and, and lines, because they're in the shallows fishing, you know, a floating line and a, a, you know, nine to 15 foot leader sometimes if they're in real skinny water. Um, the advantage of a floating line, you can do this with a midge tip too, is if you see a fish roll nearby, the floating line or the midge tip because it's so easy to get that line up off the water and cover that rise um, that's one of the reasons i do that you can also fish as you mentioned scuds under indicators you know you can fish them like you would a coronament a balanced leech you know just pick the depth and, and let the wind um, the surface chop animate that indicator which translates i think we talked about that last time about translating down to the fly and just bouncing it around seductively 
Um, yes, but we also we also fish lines like um, clear intermediates. Like I use a lot of the real lines, so a Camelux. You can touch mm -hmm. Camelux. Really like the hover. Um, there's another line I really like um, for that shallow water stuff. It's a, a line designed originally for fishing the Puget Sound area. It's called a coastal quick shooter. So it's got like a 30 some odd foot clear intermediate head and a intermediate running line behind it. And it, you can just cast this thing a mile. And, um, you know, it's got that nice, slow, relatively slow sink rate of that head system. And you can cover a lot of water with it. And it, it's been a real favorite. And then probably a Type 3 would be another line or some of the integrated yeah. lines with like a Type 3 front and a, you know, Type 2 or Type 1 back end, those kind of things. A lot of that starts to come down personal preference. But if I was to break it down, a floating line for indicators and, and real shallow stuff, uh, a hover and, and maybe a Type 3, then you'd probably be okay with those. Of course, you'd, you'd fill in the other lines as well because you, you can never have enough fly lines. <laughs> That answers that answers a considerable amount of questions without even knowing that those were questions. That's fascinating. <laughs> no, it is. And what, well, what I mean by that is, uh, uh, you mentioned your your short, quick retrieves. You know, the one to two inches. Yeah. And so immediately, immediately, I start thinking if and I'll and I'll digress to, to pyramid again. But you know, a very popular pattern out there <clears throat> is is the beetle, mm -hmm. and espe and especially in the spring. And the first beetles um, that were used out there were, were really small. I yeah. mean, the ones that we're using now are big, but they were small. And and the uh, the one that gets the most habitual use or recognition is the tan back, you know, yeah. with like an olive like an olive yeah. belly. And I'm like, what the heck does that look like? That looks like yeah. a big scud. And, and and we do tie flies. You know, I do tie flies with foam or perhaps incorporating CDC in there. Materials that are buoyant. So yeah. I can, you know, maybe I'm using a type three line, um, uh -huh. but um, what I've done is that f the line is sinking down amongst the weeds, but because, you know, governed by the leader length, maybe a shorter, uh -huh. maybe if you've got four feet of weeds, you're going to fish eight, nine feet of total leader length. And that fly is going to skip up around the, above the weed tops or just above. It's going to stay snag, relatively snag free yeah. and allow you to. You know, some of the like any like a good nymph on a river or stream, you got to put your fly in harm's way. Sometimes you got to put it in the weeds. You got to work it around rocks. And some anglers shy away from those areas because they're worried about hooking up and losing a fly. And it happens. But that's where the food lives, and that's where the predators, trout, go to feed on them, right? So if you're not prepared to put your fly in those areas, you know, it doesn't matter what you're using. Um, you're not going to be as successful, I don't think. No, I agree, Phil. You know, like you watch those bass fishermen in tournaments where they're throwing their stuff, right? Oh, it's <laughs> you in know, the, under docks, you know, in the bushes. You know, plunging weeds with tungsten weights. I'm like, you know, that's probably the only drawback to <laughs> yeah. a fly is, you know, I've done some bass fishing on the fly, and that's probably cover as a fly fisherman other than some kind of surface frog or something that we can drag over the top going down and getting in there and getting them is really tough for the you know the what is fly fishing you know our, our stuff doesn't do that very well no no not at exactly. all and you know you mentioned the uh the curved hooks and that's i love that you went into detail on that on why you prefer utilizing the more straight body shank and mm -hmm. and why yeah. because we would have kept going on and and like we're using just you know some basic you know, scud, you know, curved hooks, you know, fire hole variety. And, yeah, and well, that's what, what they call what, them, what right? We, they call them a scud yeah. caddis pupa hook. So we like, well, like, what better hook, that? right? Yeah. So, well, you, so, you, yeah, yeah, so you go I'm to them. Yeah, I'm not out here to destroy 
curved scud hooks because I love them for coronamid pupa. Uh, arguably my favorite is a you know an, a, that curved scud pupa hook like a Daiichi 11. I don't know what uh, the, the scud hook model there you've got, but you know similar. They're an excellent coronamid yeah. because yeah, the, the beauty of a scud hook is they're one extra short shanks, so you can get away with a size 10 hook, probably more approximate a size 12 standard right. hook or even a size. 14 2xl hooks when i first learned to tie flies you had such limited hook selection right you had a standard hook a 1xl hook a 2xl hook a 3xl hook and that's all you had so if you didn't have let's say you wanted to tie a size 10 standard the, the pattern called for a size 10 standard hook i don't have it but by understanding shank length in relation a size 10 standard hook is the same as a i think a, a a 14 2x right so if okay i have 14 2x i have a smaller hook or gape but i still have a fly that's the right size for the job and you have to do that now we're sort of spoiled because you can just go get xyz you know x squared whatever hook you want to get um for that specific job right and i'm no angel i have every hook no <laughs> i love hooks as well so right. <laughs> it, it's right. such a nice problem to have right like oh we got too many hook styles to choose from and I hear some of these, you know, because especially in the coronamid side of things, um, you know, there's a lot of coronamid tires that like will only fish 2XL curved nymph hooks mm -hmm. and others that'll fish, you know, just a scud hook. And I'm like, why wouldn't you fish both? Right. There are certain sure. situations, um, you know, when coronamid, we're getting a little off topic, but when coronamids are first emerging, they don't move very much. A 2XL nymph hook that's more straight um, is better approximates that sort of, you know, not very active um, behavior. And then, of course, as they start to um, become inflated with gas and start to elevate, they wiggle a little more. And if you're fishing under an indicator, I think a curved scud hook in, in conjunction with a, uh, a non-slip loop knot is going to wiggle a little more under there, I think. Um, and, and, or, you know, the potential for it. And that's, you know, and, and some days you just, and look, a lot of it comes down to confidence, right? What what you believe, because those scud hooks, once you hook a fish with them, really tough for them to throw it, right? Because it, you know, it's 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 stuck in there good. They have no shank to leverage against when they're shaking their head. Um, works well. So, but again, back yeah. to the scuds, probably a 2XL uh, nymph or a standard wet fly hook and just go slightly into the bend to give it a bit of a you know, droop or, or curve at the back end, but predominantly straight. And you don't need to be complicated. I just uploaded a a fly to my YouTube channel called the Dub Scud. It's one of my favorite flies when they're on, you know, the tiny stuff, 14s, 16s. I just take a little, I put a little, you know, when I first designed it, I didn't put it in there, but now it's a little crystal flash tail, again, for a little standout in the crowd. Um, dub body of rabbit, ice dub, sow scud whatever dubbing you want you know up here in canada we still can use seals fur um, which is a great uh, material for scud flies because it's translucent and just <laughs> put that in the dubbing loop wrap that up the shank wind a wire rib through it some contrast brush the living hell out of it give it a haircut cut everything away that doesn't look like a scud whip and collar done right and that's it it's just a bunch of dubbing pulled down below the hook and trimmed to look like a scud and it works just great because those tiny flies there's you know i see some tires that put eyeballs and you know all it, and it's it's that's a celebration of fly time but it's not always necessary to be successful right and i i uh i've come into this little thing here where i, I love the the curved hook 
for the exact reason that you said about how it's hard for the fish to get off of them but especially for these bigger size trout pyramid trout larger you know lcts cutthroats that we'll yep. find and kermit and stuff like that they got that they got that pretty significant bone structure on their jaw and yeah. uh, uh you know um uh, if you're not getting in there as i like to say if you're not giving that fish the onion when yeah. <laughs> when that when that indicator goes down you're yeah. gonna lose it and I, and I did that to myself recently and, and i'm still upset and i still had gone out there for the reckoning against this fish because i knew he took the scud mm-hmm. and he took that scud and he looked at the other side of that lake and went for it and yeah. went for it and went for it and it was one of the first times that i got put into my backing on an indicator i normally can sec- i'll get put in my backing quite a bit stripping yeah. you know for whatever the reason but this time this guy was just going 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 and and after i set that hook i'm like oh and i didn't i didn't give it to him and i'm doing everything i can to keep tension on him but what i've been trying is i get that wider gape because i like to try to give that fish basically a nose ring you know i've noticed like on these these scud patterns and chronomid patterns if i can get it behind that bone and up and around yeah um not only is an easy takeout but it's not an easy takeout for him it's an easy takeout for us um but you know, if you're if you have that small gape and you're trying to get into that that bone structure, <clears throat> you know, 80, 90 percent of the time you're going to lose that on a head shake. Yeah. You know, because he's going to move his mouth and and do something, and you know. It's well, that's get... why I think a lot of times when you fish indicators, you do get that what we call top dead center right in the tip of their snout because as I think when a fish comes up and takes whatever kind of fly it is under an indicator, as soon as that fish puts his mouth or her mouth around that fly, it knows it's not what it thought it was. And it's in the process of actually expelling the fly, like just spitting it out. And of course at that moment, that precise moment, we recognize the take, right? And we set because with an indicator, you got to set because you don't have that direct contact. If it wasn't for the indicator, because of that 90 degree, uh, disconnect with your, you know, the leader goes out to the indicator and then drops down 90 degrees. You don't usually feel it unless they just clock it on a dead run, which is always fun. Um, but <laughs> most times you just see that indicator pull over, slide, do something weird, and you set the hook. And of course, and at that moment, that fish is expelling the hook. When you recognize a take and set, you pull that fly right up into the tip of the snout, which is a great hook set, right? Usually you can steer them by the nose, literally, and, and um, you know, that hook, you know, embeds itself well in there. And and uh you get to land the fish yeah if a fish takes a fly what we call the scissors in the corner of their mouth that's where they Mm. grabbed it and turned and then as you set you've pulled that fly into the right into the corner of that mouth which is a good hook set too if the fish takes it sort of deeper in the throat you were slow right because that fish was contemplating it swallowing it right and uh, right you were kind of late on late to the party and you're still fortunate to hook it but you run the risk of doing some damage to the fish if you're catching and releasing right no absolutely and then i know we were talking we, we started uh going into the coronamids a little bit and i want your opinion on that i'm actually taylor and i want your opinion on this what do you think the chances are that you that, that there's probably a decent number of diehard coronamid slash midge guys out there that are inadvertently and unwillingly and unknowingly fishing a scud imitation <laughs> and particularly and, yeah, 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 I mean, at the not, pyramid where we're doing these size eights some people size I, sixes yeah i can yeah. believe it um you know i think i mentioned to you nico when we were first talking that scuds just have this horrible reputation right like yeah. 
it's almost I joked earlier like kissing your sister or something. Um, <laughs> for, for, for those who are old enough to remember the comedian Rodney Dangerfield, where his one of his favorite favorite lines was, "I don't get no, you know, I don't get no respect," and that's what the scud gets. It doesn't get the respect. And a lot of I've had, you know, some very recognized fly fishers um, who you know, we'd be fishing together in a boat and we'd be arguing back and forth or who's going to put, you know, do the dirty thing and put the scud on. Right. And, you know, the and actually thing. resort to fishing a scud because we know they're eating them, but they're, they just don't have the glamour and the pizzazz that, you know, chronomids and midges have been given or stripping a leech or a big articulated streamer. <laughs> you know, you look at the fly and it's like, okay, dubbing in some wire. Wow. That's, that's inspiring. Right. Where's all right, the, right. where's all the bits and pieces on this thing? Right. But you, they eat them, right. And you throw pump yeah. a fish and it's like got 60 of them in there. And it's like, okay, they're, you know, I think we need to come to terms with this. So, you know, they don't get the respect they should, but I believe a lot of our flies, you know, not only with scud and coronamid patterns, but leeches and damsels and leeches and bait fish and all that stuff. You know, we tie them for a particular purpose and the trout takes them completely for another reason, whether it's out of attraction or to them it resembled something. It just looks like food to them, right? Again, they're not down there with, you know, flashcards <laughs> holding it up. You know, there's a damselfly, hold it up next to your fly and go, oh, no, that's not it. I'm not eating that. And same with, you know, if you fish an olive coronamid or a brown olive or, or whatever, you know, it's got scud-like coloration mm -hmm. and move it in a scud-like manner. There's no reason a fish wouldn't take it for scuds we as humans we just analyze the crap out of things right, right. Um, whereas the fish just like it's an instinct driven critter it's got a tiny brain it doesn't go through the same thought process as we do um, we try to give it that um, um, that they do uh, I think partially for our ego's sake because we're like there's no way I'm getting my butt stomped by <laughs> something that's you know you know has a brain the size of a pea right and right <laughs> You know, you hear all those analogies like I'm not I can't admit I just got my lunch handed to me by by something like that. Right. So we give these fish all these um, unique, uh, you know, powers of deduction. It's like we're not fishing for Stephen Hawking here. We're fishing for, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. Yeah, they're not doing complex math to decide whether or not they're going to take the calculus to see if they're going to take the flying off it. If it looks like food and behaves like food, why won't they eat it? Even if they're. And they're curious too. Their mouths are their their hands, right? They sample. So they put things in their mouth, and and oop, that's not what I thought it was, or whatever. You've probably seen videos of fish eating sticks and all kinds of things drifting yeah. down the river. They don't know what it is. They put it in their mouth, give it a couple of chews, and ugh, spit it out. All we care as fly fishers is that bobber went down. I got the tug. I got the you know the sensation of weight, whatever. Set the hook, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. And and Phil, I know we we discussed scuds from twenty thousand feet, yeah, slightly earlier. I wanted to get to thirty thousand just a little bit, you know, sure. for a little while, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So in regards to pyramid, um, right, um, water temperature for these scuds, mm. what do they really like? Because the unique thing, as we talked about in previous podcasts with pyramid, you have some geothermal activity going on with those tufa rocks, um, calcium rich. Yep. Calcium rich, <laughs> things like that, right? So most people off the rocks here are indicator fishing, yeah. mostly because they don't want to screw up their really expensive sinking lines by snagging <laughs> them on these these rocks, right? But yep. and just it's a lot so of happens, casting and stripping, it's tiring. Yep. And right? guessing when the bottom's going to be because you yep. don't want to mess that line up, right? Yep. Um, right. 
So let's talk about, I guess, if you would know, do you know the temperature, I guess, that they really thrive in? Not 100%, but we've always used a water temperature. When it gets 50 degrees and up, that's certainly a trigger for hatches in lakes. That's a Mm -hmm. a good temperature, 50 to about 65, because it also has relationship to trout in particular. Of course, other game fish are all different. Um, They're going to be um, most active. Their metabolism's functioning at peak efficiency. They're going to eat a lot. They're going to digest quickly, eat again, digest. That's one of the great reasons why trout are such a great fly rod fish, because they're constantly grazing, whereas a pike or a muskie or a bass, you know, might eat a duck or a frog or a big bait fish and it's like a boa constrictor sit, yeah. the, sit in the corner of the aquarium and digest that thing before it feeds again um so but we you know we see scuds um active i've seen them you know active um you know i think their their metabolism is like fish they are you know cold-blooded if that's a term you can use for them um it, it's probably their activity is influenced you know there's probably when it's really cool you know below 50 in the 40s and even high 30s they're they're not going to be as active you know they're lethargic Mm -hmm. they don't scoot around as much which you know if a fish is in there they're they're also lethargic but that scud you know it's all relation there now their food source is moving slowly but i think in the summer months they could still you know i've seen leeches quite when i had aquariums and they would get you know i would just let them i had them in the garage when i lived in a more temperate climate um and you know in the summer months when it's 80 90 um you know a lot of things were kind of quiet but i'd always see leeches moving around they were always seem to be on the job doing you know be actually almost more active right but unfortunately when we're trout fishing when it starts getting in the high 60s we should probably be fishing moving water looking for you know chasing different you know warm water species because we're just going to put some stress on them so um but i would i would say there you know there's some influence in you know, something to look up. That that's for sh- that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I almost feel like it's. <clears throat> I use this analogy, like going to a casino buffet, <laughs> right? Yeah, and you ready for this one? So, I just made this one up. You're gonna like it. I like. So it. I hope so. So you go to the buffet, right? And let's say let's say the 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 um, uh, what do you call it? The desired temperature. You know, the optimum temperature is when everything is out on that buffet table. Uh, yeah. In our case, including the shrimp or the shrimp cocktail. You're like, yeah. yeah, optimum temperature. Everyone's up there running to grab it and get it. And then what happens? It's all gone. It disappears. Yeah. So take that. When it disappears, now we're out of our optimal temperature range. You know, <laughs> let's say we're we're below it. Yeah. But then here comes the guy. Yeah. And he's got another tray. <laughs> and you're the guy. Everyone else tummies is full. And you're sitting there and you're eyeballing that. When, once that tray hits its little slot, boom. You're up there and you're grabbing those little shrimps, a.k.a. Yeah. the scuds. So it's almost I feel like in our area, it might be a target of opportunity. Man, if they're there, yeah. fish ain't going to hesitate. It's going to be well, like, that's a shrimp. I'm going to eat it. Well, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I really – and I think going back to that research I did in my first book is when you look at coronamids and scuds and their popularity – uh, they're more active. They're just going to get themselves into trouble more often. Same with predator mm-hmm. bugs, you know, like a dragonfly nymph or something that's always on the hunt. There's always a bigger, meaner kid in every playground, um, mm-hmm. and they're going to get picked on. Now, of course, when a hatch occurs, and, you know, insects tend to do things en masse, you know, let's not send one calabatus nymph out. Let's send 250,000 on the hopes that some will get through, The you know, just overwhelm the predators. Um you know, they're going to be. And, and and that also when I had aquariums, too, when you're just looking at them, I'd always see scuds moving around. Um, you know, chironomids were hard to, because 
hard to have a hatch every day in your aquarium. Um, but um, you just saw that out in, in, in the in the natural surroundings. But scuds were always moving around. You know, your dra your dragonfly nymphs for the mo or ambush feeders for the most part. Even the big, you know, those two main families of dragons. But the you know the hourglass shaped ones we nicknamed darners. You know, they hunt like a cat, so they move very slowly and stalk. And then when they get close, they both you know dragonfly nymphs as a whole they can. Their gill chambers right at the tip of their abdomen, so they can shoot a focus burst. You know, just pump their abdomen and gives them a little jet propulsion system, a little afterburner, and that's what they make the like a cat would hunt, right? Get right up close and then pounce. Mm -hmm. And 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 so the, a lot of times, you know, when you looked in the aquariums and all the weeds and stuff, um, yeah, if you looked right in, there's always something crawling around, but they're buried right in there. A trout really has to go in and root them out, and they certainly can. You know, I've seen trout. Um, you know, in our in a lot of our lakes, we have a uh, it's called marl. It's precipitated calcium. It looks like white sand. It's actually a flock that falls out of suspension in the water and makes like a sandy looking um, bottom. Of course, if you step on it, you're, it was nice knowing you because you're gone. <laughs> you've just sunk into 12 feet of mud. Mm -hmm. um, that's usually a sign that there's good the potential for good scud populations and good trout sizes because, again, they help trout pack on the weight. Is, it's, a, it's a sign of calcium in there too and the trout will get right in there and put their nose in like a bonefish and root them out i've seen trout tipped up tails in out of the water like a bonefish rooting around in, in you know lightly weeded bottoms and over mall rooting out you know caddis larvae a lot of high level scuds really like to live in there um the smaller species smaller family and uh dragonfly nymphs and leeches get in there and they just root them out and then turn around and just go back through you know, and sometimes you'll see it, you'll put your anchor down if you're going to anchor and you, you're not getting anything. It's crystal clear water because marl is often associated with really clear lakes and then pull it up and all these fish come darting out of everywhere and go whipping through all that plume of marl you made, picking off whatever you churned up, right? It's kind of a uh -huh. still water San Juan shuffle. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's kind of like a, it's like a chum without chumming. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Calcium chum. It's a calcium yeah. chum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I wanted to bring up one quick little uh, last bit on the um, scud behavior. We were talking about this pre-podcast. Was that the little parasite that they can get and makes yeah. and gives them the coloration and yep. the funny behavior? Maybe you can touch on that. Yeah, because you know we talked early on about you know generally scuds don't like to be caught out in bright light. You know, they yeah. like forage in the relative security of low light condition. That doesn't mean pitch black or you know four in the morning kind of stuff unless i'm not much of a four in the morning fly fisher right? yeah. you know, I'm, I'm talking you know let's say 8 39 o'clock before that main sun gets above the weeds above the weeds above the tree line or whatever and, and gets directly on the lake to influence it but yeah there is a you know there's some unique relationships in in the natural world and as one um and it, it's often you know you'll see scuds with a focused orange dot on their back, almost like somebody hit them with a Sharpie, right? Just a focused period. And, and and people, oh, that's a pregnant scud. And, and for many years, I believe that. And I actually got into a dialogue many, about 20 some odd years ago with a professor who was doing a lot of studies on freshwater shrimp and sort of educated me on the difference between a pregnant scud and what we call an affected scud. So when I mentioned earlier on about, you know, scuds and that external egg pouch, when a scud is pregnant, that the 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 offspring and the eggs are often an orange coloration but they'll be predominantly concentrated on the underside amongst their legs 
on the bottom and kind of give the bottom half of that scud a bit of an orange hue, but it's not that focused dot. And what that focused dot is, is a little parasite called a canthocephalum. Here's your big word for the day. <laughs> My big down. word for the canthocephalum. Yeah, <laughs> this, this little guy, this, if you're, again, I use this analogy a lot. If you're at a party, and you can't get on the couch, that's where you want to sit, and it's all crowded, just sit down there and tell whoever's sitting with you about a canthocephalan, the couch will empty. They just think you're weird, <laughs> help, <laughs> therapy, and leave you alone, and you can spread out and enjoy the rest of the party because you're, you're, you're laying on that couch. But this little parasite, the scud eats the egg, and think of the movie Alien here, Okay. And uh, that egg gets uh, embeds itself in the um, the gut of the uh, the scud, and of course hatches, and then it's a little worm. And what this worm does is it starts to influence um, the behaviors of the scud, and they have this attraction to light. So what their scud ends up doing is instead of in situations where they'd normally flee into the weeds uh, or undercover, they actually start going up towards the light, the surface. Because that parasite, the goal of what the parasite's trying to influence the scud to be done is get up near the surface where it'll be eaten by waterfowl. And then that um, that little parasite will complete its life cycle in the digestive tract of the duck and get pooped out the back end as an egg and the cycle continues again. So you will find, you know, situations where Glorious. you are, um, you know, you, you do a throat sample on a fish and all the scuds have that little orange dot. And that's because of that flea behavior being honest, uh, sorry, honest, altered. Um, they're just out in the open more, right? They're just not behaving like they should. And the trout goes, wow, this is great. I don't have to chase these little guys through the weeds or root them out. They're just swimming above, you know, sort of, you know, with a death wish. And uh, I'm, trout's only too happy to grant it for them, right? So, yeah, it's a little acanthocephalan, um, a, a, it's in my book because <laughs> I talk about because it is and, and do you need to does it matter you know I have scuds that have orange in them sometimes it could be an orange bead uh, an orange thread head pronounced orange thread head a little bit of um, a, a, an orange glass bead mounted in the middle a little orange dubbing um, sometimes you got to you some tires like to put it right anatomically where it sits others just you know, somewhere on the fly, just a hint. Orange has always been a good rainbow color for me and, you know, little hot spots of some sort. Now with the colored resins, you can put a little drop on the back, you know, exactly like like it is. And, and again, this is maybe sometimes we're getting away from flies that catch fishermen and flies that catch fish. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, but it's a cool little, cool little, little critter. You think movie Alien, down your throat, <laughs> bursts out of your gut, turns into something else. Uh, a little alien-like qualities. You wonder sometimes people say, where do they get the ideas for those kind of movies? I'm like, oh, probably Mother Nature. <laughs> probably Mother Nature. Yeah. And th I think this explains something that happens at Pyramid, a phenomenon that we we tag and we call it uh, Rick James. And uh, what, <laughs> so that that's when it, more, more so in the spring is when you get the larger size fish, you know, like your 8, 10, 12 plus pounders. Yeah. We'll cruise the outside shelf at surface height and they'll break the surface like porpoise and you see yeah. them coming up you see them mouthing something that kind of going down rolling up down up down up down yeah. and then they disappear and i'm like what's going on there you know the, the immediate the the immediate thought is oh they're they're balling up bait fish or whatever i'm like well no they're they're swimming in a straight line like yeah. they're just they're cruising that that ridge and then they'll cruise back they're not doing circles 
because I've seen them hit bait balls. They they it's aggressive. <laughs> yeah. But, but, yeah. But the bait ball hit, but the, the bait ball hit, yeah, sometimes you'll see them come up, but normally it's down low. Yeah. You have to actually be on top of that bait ball and look down, and you'll see them torpedoing through, yep. and it's terrifying. But these guys are just casually just boom, 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 and then and then they'll come through, and they'll come back in a little bit shallower, and this is where you have good success, you know, like with brighter colored um, brighter colored beetles and, and, and streamers and whatnot. All of a sudden, you just get this aggressive, just, just mean, mean hit, you know, and they hit you, and they take you out, yeah. and um, – and I'm like, man, you know, now through all this conversation, I'm thinking there's a high probability that, yeah, they, they're that potentially when they're coming up like that, there's uh, targets of opportunity. There's just scuds. You know, they're sitting there yeah. swimming along they're like, oh, scud, 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 scud. Yeah. And then more than likely, there could be a significant number, especially in the spring, because our water temperatures are, are heating up just a little bit, you know, a little bit more uh, bug and scud activity that they could be infected with these parasites. Yeah. So they see it and they, and these things are darting up to the surface, bringing those big trout up to the surface, yeah. you know, and they're scooping them up like, like a well, whale, a krill, you, you know, this attraction to light. They're just cruising in places yeah. you wouldn't expect them to be. Cause usually when you see fish rising at the surface, you know, mm -hmm. if it's a large, I always look at it, if it's a larger food item um, or something that has the ability to escape them, yeah. uh, they're going to be more aggressive with it. Right. Cause they, they yeah. got a limited, you know, their time to actually get it is, is limited, but a scud, I'm not wasting, you know, I can eat that five minutes from now. It'll still be there. And I just take yeah. it slow and lazy because they're all trying to, the thing with a, a fish is it's trying to, you know, take in calories and not expend them. Right. It's kind of opposite of humans and weight watchers. We're, we're watching calories so we don't end up like that big fish we're trying to catch. <laughs> we have to waddle everywhere because we weigh so much. So. Yeah, they're they're going to only expend the energy necessary to overpower that food source. They're not going to swim up to it and just destroy it like they would yeah. to each other or something. Um, it's just not that's yeah. that, that's going to be one skinny, uh, uh, <laughs> anemic looking fish because uh, he's just wasting all his energy um, for not much return. Right, and that's like when we see these guys, it's like the, it's not an aggressive charge. It's just a. They're cruising, you know, they're, they're the moving moseying comes to mind. moseying, you know, they, they kind of come up and down, up and down and here they come. And it's like, but they're doing something. They're, they're grabbing something. You know? Well, I had, I was just recently in November, I was down off North Carolina chasing false albies on the fly. If you haven't done it, do it. Um, <laughs> and of course they're chasing anchovies and, 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 uh, bunker and things like that. And, and boy, to see those, uh, false albies and redfish and other fish when they get on a bait ball, holy smokes, it's, you know, it's what you see on our lakes when they're feeding them, but times a thousand. Because I was joking with our guide. I said, well, the ocean is just the world's biggest, one of the world's biggest lakes, right? It's still, yeah. you know, you're still doing countdown techniques. You're still doing this stuff. But the next, so we, we fished those bait balls and it was just mayhem, you know, throw a clouser in there, strip it back fast and just hang on because it's going to get eaten, right? And it's, and the next day we ran into something they called a sipping albi where we saw these false albies and they were just up on the and they were sipping it was almost like watching a spinner rise right lazy slow gentle and we it tough to figure out and we just you know and we started us you know didn't have any because you're you're out geared for chasing bait balls with clousers and intermediate lines and stripping and casting you know you, i wondered boy if you just drifted something under an indicator through them right oh, or fished a, a floating line and a longer leader and maybe a small little you know they're probably still eating maybe they're eating small bait fish or or some kind of larva that drifts up in the 
you know, in in the in the near the surface, and they just sip it. You know, they're you know, you got a fish that's eight nine pounds there that's just sipping it like a lazy um, trout just in a back eddy fishing on you know spinners that mayfly spinners that aren't going anywhere they're the easiest thing in the world to pick off so yeah i i wouldn't be surprised at all if it, it could be something like that oh, interesting interesting and then and uh i know we got the uh we got the uh 49er cowboy game quickly approaching Go so we need- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh uh i want to get one one last thing in here really quick for you and we normally always ask our guests about about burritos and and whatnot so uh this one is going to go reverse we made a sandwich um out at our who was that was that the week before christmas yeah a pyramid yep. it was Sunday just before christmas un uncomfortably cold <laughs> miserable <laughs> ice fog slow action you know it was myself taylor we had uh our buckmaster. buddy buckmaster and and kobe owens who's taking some great great photos out there made the trip look like a bang of a trip um he made one fish look like 10 which (laughs) you know but anyway so taylor here the prodigy has this thing where he doesn't he doesn't like to eat on the water he doesn't like to eat so and and if, if there's like a force feeding element there so anyway i brought out i brought out the cast iron pan i brought out uh you know like the little carolina style you know gas cooker and um I, we put some uh, uh, some puttanesca uh, spaghetti sauce in the pan, warm that up, and then uh, – oh, let me back up. I put the Italian sausages in there. I had these big old Italian – mild Italian sausages, so seared those, got them about 80% cooked, and then put in the puttanesca, which was just the super chunky. It had the olives and, like, the cherry tomatoes, like, just imported stuff from Italy. It's fascinating. Cooked that for like another 20 minutes, and then I laid a bunch of provolone cheese over the top of that, then laid foil on top of that and gave that like another 20 minutes. And by this time, we've been out there since 5.30 a.m., and and it's about 1.30 p.m. now, 1.30, 1.45, so we're, we're pretty hungry. And once those were ready and we laid them into uh, the, the sausage rolls, it was fascinating. Everyone was just enamored. It was just awesome to see people just – Hayden and Kobe sitting on the beach, just stuffing their faces with these things, going in for seconds. And Taylor did something phenomenal. <laughs> he walked off the beach and ate, left his rod on the beach. He stopped fishing. So it was a it was a culinary phenomenon, a first for Taylor to actually stop what he was doing and eating. And uh, that's something hopefully down the road one day, if we could fish together, we'd like to share that experience oh, with you. I the food it. portion. Oh, and I, I don't know if it was that we were just really hungry. Better fishing, hopefully, with that. Yeah. Well, well, see, here's the thing. This kind of rounded out the day. Fishing wasn't so hot. It wasn't so hot at all, <laughs> you know. But, you know, that experience, like, it recharged everybody. And it reminded me of that story. I kind of went for the essence of the story that you that you mentioned about um, there was that one fish that that guy would pull over on the side of the lake up there. Um, and it was almost like a like a chowder that he made. It was like some type of whitefish he was catching out of a lake. And he said he, he made this concoction on side of, of the lake for lunchtime that you absolutely loved it. I can't remember what it was. Was it the pike? I think yeah. it was, was it the oh, pike. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the pike and walleye. Yeah. 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 Well, it was just something that was completely unsuspecting, but you're just completely enamored by it. So that's what that reminded me of. I just want to share that with you. It was, just <laughs> one of the, it, it was completely unexpected. Well, hey, I'm going to make some sausage sandwiches. Oh, great. And you just watch everybody fall into it. And I'm like, man, I wish we could do that with the fish today. 
right. make them that excited about what we're presenting in the water. <laughs> but, Remember the fish you're dealing with, right? Little tiny brain cell. Right. <laughs> Doesn't appreciate right. the finer things in life. They don't. They don't. They don't. Right. Not, yeah. not at all. Not at all. And before we let you go, Phil, is there anything you got coming up? Uh, any any shows or anything that you're going to that you want to share with us or any cool activities that we uh well, show show season's upon us but um unfortunately with the omicron world we're in and it, it's making getting there challenging uh, yep. not much coming down to the states but getting back into canada a lot of restrictions and hoops and got to have tests to get back and hard to get tests and, and all that stuff so i've had to postpone yep. a few um, but hoping in February to be at the Denver show, the Denver fly fishing show, the Pleasanton fly fishing show, the Wasatch uh, fly fishing expo uh, in Salt Lake City. Uh, I mentioned um, going to Argentina again in October. I do have some Stillwater schools uh, in British Columbia, um, just putting those together. Um, so you can join join me on the water in both the, the spring and the fall. I know Brian Chan and I are doing a course at Corbett Lake Lodge, a beautiful little lodge um, just south of Kamloops uh, in September. So I think we still have four spots available for that. Um, so that's, I think that's, you know, it's twenty four ninety five Canadian, which is like, you know, $7.50 US. But that includes, uh, you know, four and a half days of fishing, food, accommodation, seminars, uh, time on the water, scheduled time on the water with Brian and I, uh, you know, catching fish and doing, having fun. So, um, still space available for that. Um, what else is going on? Mm, usual film and TV shows and, and trying to get out, but, uh, mostly schools and, and shows right now, um, nice. up, um, up, up there and then trying to get some, some fishing in myself and guiding and things like that. Once, once the snow and the ice, uh, leaves our lakes, which based on the winter storm warning I've got today, doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon so it probably won't be till may or late april before things are you can safely get out there and clean the two feet of snow out of my boat that's in the backyard right now oh jeez, <laughs> we're gonna have to we're gonna have to squeeze a day in there between your your denver and your pleasanton trip because pyramid Ooh. happens to fall in between those two locations yeah. as a like this. airfare booked but i'm getting See pretty adapted. yes <laughs> i'm getting pretty adapted uh at uh um, changing airfares, so anything anything's possible. Denver, Denver to Reno, yeah, and then then you could Reno down to the bay. Now, of yeah, course, so if just... I come down and test positive, I can't get home for ten days. That's a problem. They won't what let me shame. back in. So, well, um, so I mean, you know, if I'm you... if I'm asymptomatic, I could put a goldfish bowl over my head or something, so I don't infect anybody else. And, well, and, yeah, uh, I mean, that works for us. Well, it works for us. <laughs> I mean, then you might just have to sit it out at Pyramid, be like, oh, you know, it's this terrible thing. I'm sorry. I have to sit it out, you know, on the beach here. Guys, just, you know, keep your distance. I mean, and, uh, I'll be good. good for sicknesses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fishing's the ultimate social distancing sport, isn't it? It, it really is. Yeah. It really no, I'm is. also going to be doing, I'm doing more online um, courses as well. I'm going to have a, oh. a coronamid tying and fishing course that I'm going to offer that's about five or six nights. I'm just putting it together. I might have that released um, in a week or so. Um, that's sort of online through Zoom tying and how to fish them. Um, that you can either take the course as a whole package uh, or you can pay for a particular uh, session that's of interest to you to give some some op opportunity that way. But it's a blend of tying, um, fishing techniques like we've talked about here, leader construction, all that kind of stuff on that. And I'm looking to do other um, 
you know, subjects like that as well with like scuds or, or other um, food sources as well, just to do the online stuff because they, they prove them quite popular and it's a chance to reach a lot of people, you know, with the technology we've got as a result, <laughs> the increase in our online technology through the pandemic. One good thing about it, I guess. Yeah. It makes a, a unique way to, to offer, uh, you know, reach out to people and, and help them because I, I love helping them try to improve their time on the water. It's too much fun. Yeah, speaking of tying, I watched your uh, UV um, chrominant. Oh, the Glow Boy. Yes. Yeah, so I went ahead and uh, bought yeah. quite a few different colors. Yeah, that's, uh, I think he bought all of them. Lost this cool stuff. And, you know, I've had a couple of people say, well, there's not a lot of UV lights down there. And I said, no, I was just putting that on there to show the impact of it. But that material fluoresces, and we use fluorescent materials all the time in beads or body materials. And again, you got a tiny fly at depth. If it catches any light and fluoresces a little bit, it stands out and hopefully gets munched. It's worked well for me, so uh, absolutely, it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and one last time, what's your um, your website address with your little uh, fly shop and stuff? Yeah, flycraftangling.com uh -huh. uh, is my website address, and then the store is the Stillwater Fly Fishing Store. Um, where we've got, uh, you know, mine, myself and Brian Chan run that. We have our um, signature flies. They're tied for us through Montana Fly Company. Um, we've got indicators, uh, our books, DVDs. We've got digital downloads, fly rods. Um, it's it's a Nietzsche, Stillwater focused. That's all it's it's going to be, you know. And that's where you can pick up my the the book of mine, the Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing, um, where it's got you know just about all we talked about today is in there, and more. So. Uh, awesome awesome yeah that's pick a good it up reference yeah, yeah. yes yeah <laughs> we, we highly encourage it we highly yeah. encourage it well awesome thanks again phil we can't thank you enough for joining us it's been insightful in-depth educational podcast we loved it um oh, and i hope, I hope everyone that, i love these. oh here thank you no we appreciate you coming on I, I really hope people really learn something from this and get out there and and try this stuff experiment and, you know take this knowledge and and put it to use and see yeah. what works for him. I think it'll go a long way, regardless of what still water you're on. It, exactly. You're going to have a blast. You're going to have as a blast. Nike, so. As Nike says, just do it. Just, just do, do it. Just, just do, do it. Do, do we owe somebody? Do we owe somebody money for that now? They're going to pay. Oh, true. Right. <laughs> That's going to work that way. Yeah. There you go. These yeah, podcasts will all be done live in the Bahamas or something. Because <laughs> <laughs> we'll right. have a. You'll have a budget that'll just. You know, <laughs> that would be nice one, more than a one third day. world country yeah. <laughs> awesome well again thank you Phil I appreciate you joining us and uh, everyone else until next time tight lines I'll sing you a song oh the fish show the sea way hey blow the man down come all ye young sailor men listen to me oh give us some time to blow the man down now first came the herring saying i'm king of the seas way hey blow the man down he jumped on the poop oh the captain will be oh give us some time to blow the man down Next came the flatfish, they call him Escate. Way, hey, blow the man down. If you'll be the captain, well then I'm the mate. Oh, give us some time to blow the man down. Next came the hake, he was black as a rook. Way, hey, blow the man down. Says he, I'm no sailor, I'll ship as the cook. 
Oh, give us some time to blow the man down. Next came the sharp with his two rows of teeth. Way, hey, blow the man down. Cook, mind you, the cabbage and I'll mind the beef. Oh, give us some time to blow the man down. Then came the eel with his slippery tail. Way, hey, blow the man down. He climbed up aloft and he cast off each sail. Oh, give us some time to blow the man down. Then came the mackerel with his pretty striped back. Way, hey, blow the man down. He hauled off each sheep and he boarded each tack. Oh, give us some time to blow the man down. Then came the whale, the biggest in the sea. Way, hey, blow the man down. Shouting, haul in your head sheets, now Helm's a lee. Oh, give us some time to blow the man down. Then came the sprat, he was smallest of all. Way, hey, blow the man down. He jumped on the poop, crying, main tops I haul. Oh, give us some time to blow the man down. Blow the man down, bullies, blow the man down. Way, hey, blow the man down. Blow the man down, bullies, blow the man down. Oh, give us some time to blow the man down.